And Father, that is um, just our prayer here this morning, God. Lord, we know and believe that your Holy Spirit is already in this place. He's here through those of us who have put our faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. He has taken up residence within us. But God, we also know that there are times when, uh, God, in a unique way, Father, you send the presence of your Spirit to to be with us. And, and so, Father, that's just what we pray here in this service, God. Father, as we, as we turn our attention now to your word and see the truths that you have for us, Father, God, I just pray that your spirit, um, who actually ultimately we believe wrote this word, that he would illuminate what it says, God. I pray that he would speak through me, and I, I pray, Father, that he would speak to the hearts of each and every one of us, and we would learn today exactly what you, you want us to learn, Father. And so, God, we, we just give this time over to you, and we ask that you are pleased in and through it. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen. We can go ahead and have a seat. It's great to see all of you. My name is Chris Ward. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And uh, as you take a seat, if you can do me a favor, if you can open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 2 is where we're going to be today. Mark chapter 2. Uh, we get the opportunity to start a, a brand new sermon series here uh, this weekend, and I want to take a few minutes up front here before we dive into our passage to just introduce this series a little bit, because it's a little bit of a different series. Uh, one of the things that, that as a staff here at French Church that we have become aware of recently, uh, more and more so, I should say, is that um, for whatever reason, there are just a lot of people in our church right now um, who, who are going just through some really big th- stuff right now, some really big problems and issues that they are carrying into this place week after week. Uh, Kent talked about the prayer requests. Every week we receive those prayer requests that you send in. And it's hard at times not to feel just a little bit overwhelmed because there are a lot of big needs that are represented in our church right now. And part of our responsibility as a, as a, as a church, as a body of Christ, is to come alongside those who, who are struggling. And so uh, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, uh, as, a, as a teaching team, we got together and we talked about a series for the summer, and we said, what if at the beginning of the summer, um, what if we dedicated some weeks to some of the big problems that we know those in our church are going through? And what if week after week after week, we just address some of these big issues head on? And that's exactly what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks. Here at Friends Church, we're going to get very practical, we're going to get very simple over the next several weeks. And what we're going to do is we're going to address some of the big needs that we know right now that are represented in our church. But I'll tell you what, this, this series is ultimately not a series about problems. This series is ultimately a series about solutions. One of the things that strikes me about many of the prayer requests that we get week after week after week is that all of these issues that we get, um, they are ones that Jesus himself addressed during his ministry here on this earth. Jesus himself talked about. Jesus did something about. He found them in other people, and in some way he, he ministered to them. And so actually what this series is going to be is it's going to be a, a series on the solutions that Jesus himself offers to these various problems. We're going to anchor ourselves in the next several weeks in the Gospels. And each week we're going to either present a story or a teaching of Jesus that addresses some of these issues. And today we're going to deal with, uh, we're going to talk about what is probably the biggest problem that we will cover in this series, at least in my opinion, and that is today we're going to talk about the problem of, of sickness and illness and disease. Uh, about a week and a half ago, I was having dinner with some of my um, close friends from college, and there was one friend I hadn't seen in about a year and a half or so, and we were catching up, and I was shocked uh, to hear that his wife recently has been diagnosed with a brain tumor. 
And uh, I know his wife, she went to school with us, she's just a year older than me, so she's 36, she's 37 years old. She has two kids under the age of, of eight at home. And uh, my friend was telling me that her prognosis right now, it, it doesn't look very good, it doesn't look very hopeful. And I know that I'm not the only person to, to hear something like that uh, in the past 12 months. Uh, I would imagine every single one of us in this room, uh, we have been touched in some way, shape, or form by a major illness in the past 12 months, whether it's our own illness or whether it's something that someone we know is going through. In fact, the older I get, the more I'm realizing that, that part of a constant and probably an increasing constant uh, thing that we face in this life is, is just sickness and illness and disease. And since this, solution, this series is ultimately about the solutions that Jesus brings to these various problems, the, the question we want to answer today is, okay, so what is the solution that Jesus brought to the problem of illness and sickness? What is it that Jesus had to do about this when he encountered this in his own time here on this earth? And it's in seeking to answer that question that I brought you here to Mark chapter 2. Immediately uh, when I knew I was going to teach on this subject, I knew that this is the passage that I wanted to teach on. Because in Mark chapter 2, we learn some very important, very fundamental lessons about sickness and illness and Jesus' perspective towards them, God's perspective towards them. And the first lesson that this particular passage teaches us is that the biggest need that we carry into this place today is ultimately not our sicknesses and illnesses, no matter how big they are. The biggest need that we bring into this place today is not our aches and pains, it's not our recent diagnoses. No, the biggest need that we bring into this place actually has nothing to do with the physical at all. The biggest need we, have, we bring into this place is, is actually spiritual. It's spiritual. And that's what we see that lies behind the surprising little twist that we see in this particular story. The story that we're going to look at today, it, it begins a lot like a lot of the stories in Jesus' life. We're told that Jesus uh, is at this particular house in this city. Uh, in, in this particular story, it's in the, the region of Capernaum, which is in first century Israel. And as he is at this house, news begins to spread that Jesus is at this house, and a crowd begins to appear. Pick it up with me in verse 1 of Mark chapter 2. It says, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. Now, just so you know, the Greek there can either be translated he had come home, or it can be translated he had come to a house, and that's what I prefer. I don't think uh, Mark is saying that he has come to his own house here. I think he's come to someone else's house. Verse 2, it says, they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. So there we see Jesus has arrived at this particular house. And when he is there, news begins to spread that Jesus is there, and we're told that a large crowd begins to appear. And in fact, this crowd is so big, we're told, that it fills the entire house. It even spills outside into the streets of this house. And likely this crowd has come to Jesus for two reasons. First of all, they've come to Jesus because as it says there in verse 2, they have come to hear Jesus preach the word. Uh, this story we're looking at today, it occurs very early on in Jesus' ministry but even though it occurs very early on in Jesus' ministry, Jesus is already becoming known in this story as a teacher, in his life as a teacher. He's becoming known as someone who has a unique insight into the Word of God. And so people are coming to hear Jesus talk about God. But I don't think that's the only reason that people are coming. I think there's another reason that people are, are coming as well, and that is because Jesus also in his ministry at this point, he has also become known as a miracle worker. He's also become known as a healer. In Mark chapter 1, we hear that Jesus is in the region of Galilee. And as Jesus is in Galilee, we're told that all these sick people are being brought to Jesus, and Jesus is doing the impossible. 
He is healing these sick people. He's healing these sick people of their diseases. And so I think these people are also coming to Jesus because they want to witness a miracle, or maybe they want to be a recipient of a miracle themselves. And so that is why they are coming to Jesus. And when they come to Jesus, and it's among this group of people eager to witness a miracle, it's among this group of people eager to maybe experience a miracle themselves, that we are introduced to the next group of people that Mark tells us about. Pick it up here in verse 3. It says, Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by the four of them. Some men came bringing to them a paralyzed man carried by the four of them. So to this house that Jesus is at, we are told there is this paralyzed man who comes carried by four of his friends. And I'll tell you what, men and women, as I was studying this passage over the past week, I was really wishing that Mark would tell us just a little bit more about this paralyzed man so that we could identify with him a little bit better. But Mark just doesn't tell us all that much about him. For example, we have no idea how long he has been paralyzed. We don't know if this is a result of some sickness or illness that occurred later in life, or we don't know if he was born this way. We don't know the extent of his paralysis. We don't know if he is paralyzed from the neck down or if he is paralyzed from the waist down. We don't even know this man's name, okay? Really, we're only able to tell three things about this individual. First of all, we're able to tell that he cannot walk. Whatever the extent of his paralysis, we know that it affects his legs. He cannot walk. Secondly, we're able to tell that he's, he's not very wealthy. He's, he's actually probably poor. And the reason we can tell that is later on in this passage, we're told that this man is being carried on a mat. And the Greek word that is used for mat is a colloquial term at this time to refer to a poor man's mat. So he's not wealthy. And the third thing that we know is he has come to Jesus for healing. He has come to Jesus for a miracle. And so they arrive at this house where Jesus is at. And when they arrive at this house, they encounter a little bit of a problem. They find out that they are too late. The crowd is too big, and they realize that there is no way that they are going to be able to get to the front door to see Jesus. But rather than give up, they decide to come up with a plan B. They decide to improvise. And before we know it, they are on the roof of this particular house. Now, in the first century, men and women, the, the roofs of, of houses in Israel, they were usually flat. Okay, the way that a typical roof was constructed in the first century is on the top of the walls of a house, they would have some tree branches laid, and then on top of that, they would put this mud-like substance that would begin to harden over time and almost form like a concrete, but it was actually much softer than a concrete. In fact, we're going to put a picture of a replica of a first century house on the screen. There you see it. This is from the inside. You see the roof. That's those tree branches right there. And then on top of that would be this mud-like substance. And this proved to be very versatile for the average Jewish family. Uh, for one, on one hand, it was very sturdy, okay? In fact, Jewish families would typically sleep on the roof during the summer months when it got really hot. In fact, most houses in Israel would actually have a staircase that led to the top of the roof, and that's likely how this paralyzed man and his four friends got up there. So it was very sturdy. At the same time, it was also very flexible. It was very easy to be repaired, and in fact, we have history of uh, sources saying that the typical Jewish family probably replaced their house at least once, or replaced their roof, rather, at least once a year. And so it's on the roof of this house that this guy, this paralyzed man, and his four friends are gathered. And why are they there? What are they doing there? Well, we find the answer to that in verse 4. It says, since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd... They made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. 
So why are they on the top of the roof? Well, they are on the top of the roof in order to form a back door to Jesus. Okay, They're on the top of the roof in order to form their own secret passageway to Jesus. They're on the roof so that they can dig a hole big enough that they can lower this paralyzed man through. Now, I know for us in our modern 21st century sensibilities, there are a lot of questions that are raised with this, right? Like liability and insurance and property damage and legality and all those sort of things. But I promise you, men and women, that they were not thinking about any of that. They were thinking about one thing. They were thinking about how can we get our friend to Jesus? How can I get to Jesus in order to be healed? And so they start digging. 20 minutes pass, 30 minutes pass, an hour passes, whoever knows how long. But they're able to dig a hole enough, big enough to lower this paralytic man through. And so that's exactly what they do. Likely by attaching four ropes to the corners of each of this mat, they lower this man through into this house. Now, imagine being in the audience listening to Jesus and seeing a paralytic man like an angel come down from heaven, right? Interesting sight. But they lower this man into this house where Jesus is, and, and, and this man comes face to face with Jesus, and Jesus sees him. And that's when we come to the twist in this story. That's when we come to the shock in this story. Because when Jesus sees this paralytic man, he does something that no one would anticipate. He does something that no one would expect. Look with me at verse 5 of this passage. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, here's the shock, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. When Jesus saw their faith, it says he said to the paralyzed man, not son, your faith has made you well, get up, take your mat and leave. He doesn't say to the, the man, son, your, your faith has healed you, now you can go in peace. And said he looks at this man and he says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, here's what I want us to do, okay? We haven't done this in a while, but we've done it in the past, and it's one of my favorite things to do. On the count of three, I want you to all make the surprise sound, okay? On the count of three, I want you to all go, <gasps> like that. Remember that? We used to do that. It's one of my favorite things to do, okay? So, don't leave me hanging here, please, because that will be very embarrassing, okay? On the count of three, <gasps> like that. Ready? One, two, three. Oh, that was great. That was the best of all three services. You did awesome. You should give yourself a hand for that. That is the reaction. That is the reaction that this crowd would have had when they heard Jesus say that. And more than that, I think that's the reaction that this paralytic man had, if not externally, internally, when he heard Jesus say this. Because let's be honest, men and women, this man did not come to Jesus in order to have his sins forgiven. This man came to Jesus in order to be healed, right? This man came to Jesus in order to walk again. This man came to Jesus so that he would no longer have to rely on people for the most basic tasks in life, like getting dressed and eating and even going to the bathroom. I mean, this man came to Jesus in order to be set free from, from the prison that his body has become. And yet when he gets to Jesus, after all the work that it took to get to Jesus, digging through the roof, the, 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 the time, the labor it took his friends to do that, rather than hear, you know, your faith has made you well, what does Jesus say to him? He says, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. As I, as I imagine this story in my mind's eye, I, I imagine that the paralytic man, he is, he is down on the floor, he is lying on this mat, and, and after Jesus says that that, that, that surprise sound in the crowd goes away, and then there is just sort of this awkward silence. And everybody begins to look 
at this paralytic man, and his, his face has turned bright red. Okay, He is as embarrassed as probably anybody has ever been before. And I sort of imagine him looking through the roof at his friends who are peering over, seeing what is going on. And I imagine him saying to his friends, if not through his words, saying to his friends through his face, um, you need to get me out of here. I want to go home. I mean, what is Jesus doing here? Is, is he trying to embarrass the man? Your sins are forgiven? What, what is Jesus doing here? Well, I said it a little bit ago. Jesus is taking care of this man's biggest need. Jesus is taking care of this man's biggest need. You know, the Bible makes it clear, men and women, that every single one of us, we walk into this place with a need. Some of us are aware of it, some of us are not aware of that need, but whether we're aware of it or not, we all have the same need. And it's not a physical need, it's a spiritual need. The Bible tells us that every single one of us in this world, we, we are guilty of this thing called sin. And what is sin? Sin is ultimately, as simply as I can put it, sin is this decision that we constantly make in this life to go our own way, to do our own thing. Constantly, we, we don't care about what God wants us to do, whether it's because we don't believe in God or whether it's because we know what God wants us to do, but we think we know better or we want to do our own thing, and so we decide to go our own way. And every single time we do that, the Bible tells us that we commit this thing called sin. And sin is ultimately a rebellion against God, and it's an offense against God. And because of our sin, the Bible tells us that we exist in this world as spiritually sick. In fact, more than that, the Bible tells us that we exist in this world as spiritually dead apart from Jesus. We are spiritually dead. And there is nothing that we can do to overcome this death by ourselves. But that's ultimately why God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to ultimately die on a cross. And why? Because when Jesus died on that cross, he took upon himself the punishment for all the times that we have sinned. He took upon himself the punishment for all the times that we have decided to go our own way. And what the Bible says, the heart of the Christian message, in fact, is that when we put our faith in Jesus, something happens to us. We are healed spiritually. Our sins are forgiven. We are raised from the dead spiritually. And one of the results of that is that when we die, when we physically die in this world, we do not spiritually die. Spiritually, we live forever. In fact, we get to live forever in this eternal bliss, in this place with God and Jesus called heaven. And it is the spiritual sickness that is the greatest need that we have in this life. And that is what Jesus is taking care of in this man. When Jesus sees this man come into the room, like an expert physician, Jesus looks at him and he realizes that the biggest problem this man has is not his physical paralysis. The biggest problem this man has is his spiritual paralysis, if you will. He, he, he is a sinner. He, he has never been forgiven of his sins, and therefore he is spiritually sick. He is spiritually dead. And so Jesus decides to take care of that first. And so he sees the faith that this man says, has, and he says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. And in that moment, Jesus heals this man spiritually. And what I want to make clear to every single one of us here today is that that is what Jesus is most interested in doing in our lives as well. That is what Jesus is most interested in doing in our lives as well. You know, if I can be honest with you, I have had some very mixed emotions about our services here this weekend. On one hand, I've been really excited about it. 
If you don't know this already, we're going to end this service with an opportunity for anybody who's in this church who is sick or knows someone who is sick, and I'm talking about physical sickness, to come forward and to receive prayer. And we want to pray over you. And the reason why we want to pray over you is because we believe in this church that God can heal, that God can heal miraculously. I'll talk more about that in a minute. And so we want to pray over you for something big to happen in your life. And, and, and I believe that there are going to be some incredible stories that come out of this weekend. And so for that reason, I'm excited. But I've also been a little bit nervous. And the reason why is because I can imagine the scenario that's going to happen this weekend. There are some of you right now, you are suffering from a big illness. And you are desperate. You are desperate to be healed from that illness. And so you are going to come forward and you are going to receive prayer. And there are going to be some of you this weekend, you, you don't get healed physically. And you're going to be really disappointed as a result of that. And for those of you who are wavering a little bit in your faith, this may be what sends you over the edge. You may decide that God is not real because he did not choose to heal you physically. And the challenge that I have this weekend is how do I convince you that the greatest need that you have is not a physical need, but the greatest need that you have is a spiritual need. And that although God does not choose to heal everybody physically in this life who wants healing physically, he will choose to heal everybody spiritually in this life who wants healing spiritually. He will choose to forgive the sins of anybody who decides to put their faith in Jesus Christ. And it is, how do I convince you that it is that spiritual healing that in the grand scheme of things is far more significant than any physical healing that we can experience? That's a tough sell, and I know that. That's a very tough sell. For those of you who, who, who are husbands here, who are in fear of losing your wife to, to their disease, for those of you who are parents who are in fear of losing your children to their illness, for those of you who, who are suffering with a pain that is so excruciating right now that you have at times considered doing whatever it takes, whatever it takes to have that pain alleviated, that is a very tough sell. Because let's be honest, you're not thinking about your, your sins right now. You're not thinking about anything spiritual. What you're thinking about is, I want a few more years with a, my spouse. I want my children to outlive me. I want this pain to be removed, to be alleviated in my life. That's what you're thinking about. And it's a tough sell for me to say, well, the biggest need that you have is not that physical need, but it's a spiritual need. But it's true. Because listen. Let's say that you do get healed physically today. Let's say that something miraculous happens today and you do get healed physically. If that's the case, let me ask you this question. Where are you going to be in 100 years? Where are all of us going to be in 100 years? We're all going to be in the same place, right? We're all going to be six feet under. You see, there is a sense in which men and women, no one ultimately gets healed physically in this life. Right, any, any miraculous healing that happens today, it, it is really just a delaying of the inevitable because every single one of us one day is going to die. And what the Bible makes clear is that when we die, that is not the end of us. There is an eternity that stretches before us and that eternity is either spent in this eternal bliss in this place called heaven or that eternity is spent in eternal torment in a place called hell. And whether or not we spend eternity in heaven or hell is completely dependent upon whether or not 
not we were healed spiritually in this life. It's completely dependent upon whether or not we allowed our sins to be forgiven by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. It's completely dependent upon whether or not we recognize that the greatest need we had in this life was a spiritual one. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you, that if you are healed physically in this life, but you are not healed spiritually, that the second that you pass from this life to the next one, the second that you die, as all of us one day will, in that day, in that second, you will trade any physical healing you receive for a spiritual healing. You will trade any alleviation of pain that you received. You will trade any sort of extra couple of years that you got for the forgiveness of sins that you did not receive by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. But the unfortunate thing is the Bible makes it clear is that in the second that we realize that as we pass from this life to the next, it is too late because our fate has been sealed. So I say all that to say that I want everybody to be healed physically today. Absolutely, I do. I think that would be incredible. But if given a choice, I would much rather have everybody healed spiritually today because the much greater thing would be to see everybody here today in heaven. And that's why if this story had ended here at verse 5, it would have been enough. If this man had received this forgiveness of sins, this spiritual healing, but he had not received any physical healing, he would have received the greatest gift that he could receive. He would receive eternal life. But the story doesn't end here. Because although we do believe that it is that spiritual healing that God cares the most about, we do also believe that Jesus does care about the physical, and Jesus can heal the physical. And that's what we see as we continue on in this story. We're told that right after Jesus pronounces the forgiveness of sins over this man, there is a group of people listening to Jesus. They begin to grow uncomfortable. Uh, the group of people in my Bible is called the teachers of the law. In your Bible, they may be called the scribes. They were really just the pastors of the day. They were the theologians of the day. They were the ones who dedicated themselves to studying the word of God and teaching that word of God to other people. And when they hear Jesus pronounce the forgiveness of sins, all of a sudden they grow uncomfortable. Why? Because they know that the Bible teaches that God is the only one who has the power to forgive sins. Every sin is an offense against God, and so God is the only one who has the authority to forgive sins. And so when Jesus declares that this man's sins are forgiven, what is Jesus doing? He is claiming to be God. And why would Jesus claim to be God? Because he is. In fact, it is the fact that Jesus pronounces sins. That's one of the indications we have in the Bible that Jesus claimed to be more than just a man, that he claimed to be God. And the scribes know that that is what he is claiming when he forgives this man's sins. And so they grow uncomfortable. And Jesus knows they're uncomfortable. And so Jesus decides to prove that he does have the power, he does have the authority to forgive sins, that he is more than just a man on this earth. And the way he's going to prove that is by performing the more spectacular miracle from a human perspective. He is going to now heal this man physically. Pick it up in verse 6 of this passage. It says, now some teachers of the law were sitting there and they were thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Verse 8, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? He said, which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. I want you to know that when I say that this man's sins are forgiven, I have the power to do that because I am indeed God in flesh. And the way that I'm going to let you know that is I'm now going to perform the more spectacular miracle in all of your eyes. And so he said to the paralytic man, verse 11, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Those are the words that that man was hoping to hear. And what is he 
he do when he hears those words? Verse 12, it says, He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, it said, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. What does Jesus do in this story? Jesus saves. In every sense of the word, Jesus saves. Jesus saves spiritually as well as physically. Jesus heals this man spiritually, and he heals this man physically. And I want you to know, men and women, that this is what Jesus always did in his ministry. Every single record we have of a person with an illness coming to Jesus asking for healing, they got physical healing. And why did Jesus do that? Well, because one of Jesus' goals here on this earth is to show God's true intent, God's true will for mankind. You know, if you've grown up in the church, you may be used to hearing Christians say something like this when someone gets sick. Well, that just must have been God's will. It must have been God's will that that happened. I've always grown uncomfortable by that. And the reason why is because if you really want to know God's will for you and me, look at Genesis chapter 2. Look at the Garden of Eden before the sin of Adam and Eve messed it up. Look at the end of the Bible. Look at Revelation when God fully and finally reigns here on this earth. And in both of those instances, what do we see? There is no sickness. There is no illness. There is no disease. There is no death. That is God's true will for this earth. And that is what Jesus has given us a picture of during his earthly ministry. But here's the most amazing thing, okay? After Jesus died and resurrected and ascended into heaven, left this earth, guess what? The healings didn't stop. The miracles didn't stop. We read the book of Acts, which is the history of the early church, and we see Jesus' disciples were given the same power, the same authority, the same ministry that Jesus had, and sick people were brought to the church, and sick people were healed by Jesus' followers. And I believe, men and women, there is no reason to think that the same thing that can't happen today. There is no reason to think that God still can't heal today miraculously. I know some of you don't believe that. I know some of you were raised in traditions where you were taught that, that once the Bible was finished being written, that all those sort of miracles and healings and things like that stopped. The only problem I have with that is nowhere does the Bible say that. Nowhere does the Bible say that once this book is finished being written, once the last page of Revelation was finished, that God was going to stop all the miracles here on this earth. It doesn't say that. Instead, you read this book and you come across a passage like this, James chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. We'll put it on the screen. Listen to what the brother of Jesus, listen to what James instructs the church to do. He says, is anyone among you sick? He says, let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Let's put verse 15 on the screen just by itself. Look with me just at verse 15. Read that verse like right there. What does that verse look like to you? You know what it looks like to me? It looks like James has Mark chapter 2 open up in front of him. And he's telling the church, okay, based on what Jesus did in Mark chapter 2, here are the lessons that we learn. And what do we learn? We learn spiritual healing. That's most important, forgiveness of sins. But we also learn that God still heals physically. And so we are to ask him for that. And what I want you to know, brothers and sisters, today is I've seen this. I've seen this happen. I've seen it with my own eyes. I have seen God heal miraculously. About a year ago, there was a friend of mine, Dan. He attends this church. Dan woke up in the middle of the night with excruciating pain. And so they went into uh, the, the ER, and they ended up doing a CT scan on him. 
and they found in his small intestine that he had a 100% blockage. The radiologist looked at it and said, this is definitely a tumor. This is absolutely the sign that you have a tumor in your small intestine. So immediately they scheduled surgery to remove it. Dan is an incredible man of faith. So Dan started praying. He got some of us praying as well. Later that day, he went into surgery. They took out, they opened him up, took out the part of the small intestine where the blockage was found. The surgeon opened that up, and guess what he found? Nothing. There was nothing there. Nothing, completely clear. It's been a year, and he's still completely clear. The surgeon later told Dan that this radiologist has never been wrong. He has never misdiagnosed a tumor. This is the first time he has ever misdiagnosed a tumor. I'll tell you what, I feel sorry for that radiologist because he wasn't wrong this time. He's still batting a thousand. It's just that that radiologist is no match for God because God healed Dan. God healed him. A few years ago, a man in this church started to feel some aches and pains, went in for some tests, and the news that came back is, is the worst news that, that we probably can receive when that happens. They did a scan. They said, you have cancer, and it, it, and it is spread all over the body. And so they were going to start some very aggressive treatment on him. Right before they started the treatment, he came in for prayer. He wanted prayer for the treatment, prayer for all of that. And so we did, but we also prayed that God would do something miraculous. We prayed that God would do something big. That next week, he went in for some more tests. He went in for another scan, and they found nothing. No cancer whatsoever. The doctor has no explanation for it. I do. <laughs> God healed him. God answered our prayer. I have a friend of mine down in San Diego. He's a pastor. Uh, they pray a lot for, for healing over people. And he sent me last night just a list of stories. But probably the one that stood out to me the most is that uh, they have two cases, documented cases. They have, they have notes from doctors of two people in their church that have been healed of type 1 diabetes. That's the kind you don't get healed from. That's the kind you live with for life. Two medically documented cases of type 1 diabetes being healed. Men and women, God heals. God heals. He heals through medicine, yes. He heals through doctors, yes. Sometimes his healing is, is slow and it takes place over time, absolutely. But, but sometimes God chooses to heal miraculously as well. Sometimes God chooses to heal instantaneously as well. Does he do it all the time? No. Every single one of us have prayed for people who have been sick and they haven't gotten better. And listen, if God does not heal, there's a reason that God has in that sickness. Sickness can, can teach us trust and dependence upon God. Sickness can teach us, uh, the, the, teach the world the the, the belief that we have in an afterlife. So if ever God doesn't heal, there is a reason for it. But I like what John Wimber used to say. He said, you know, back in the 1950s and 60s, we didn't believe that God healed anymore. So we never prayed that anybody would get healed. He said, now we believe that God heals. And so we pray all the time that someone would get healed. And guess what? Sometimes people now get healed. And I think that's right. Our responsibility is simply to do what James asked us to do. Our responsibility is simply to ask God, God, would you heal this person? Would you heal them physically? Would you heal them miraculously? And then we leave it up to him. And sometimes God in his grace will do it. Sometimes he won't. But that's for God to decide. That's for God to sort out. And so here's what we're going to do here in this church as we close this service. We're going to do what James tells us to do. 
In just a second, Elaine's going to come up and she's going to, and her team are going to lead us in a couple of more songs. And as we do that, we're going to have some people down in front. And for you up on top, they're going to be on the landings up there. And what we're going to do is we would invite you to come forward. If you are sick or someone you know is sick and you want prayer for them, we would invite you to come forward. And when you come forward for prayer, I want to let you know we are not going to embarrass you. We are not going to slap you on the forehead. We're not going to yell at you or anything like that because we don't believe God needs any of that, okay? Instead, we're going to do what James tells us to do. We're going to do two things. First of all, we're going to anoint you with oil. We're going to put some oil on our finger, and we're going to draw a cross on your forehead. There is nothing magical or mystical about the oil. In the Bible, oil is a sign of God's presence. And so we want to do this to remind you that God is with you and that it is God who ultimately heals. So we're going to anoint you with oil. And then after that, we're just going to pray for you. We're going to pray in whatever direction you tell us to pray. But I want to let you know we're going to pray big prayers. We're going to pray bold prayers. And we're going to allow God to sort it out. We're going to allow God to do what he wants, okay? So that's what we're going to do. But as we close here, let me, let me just make two things abundantly clear, okay? The first thing is this. I want every single one of us in this church today, I want us to believe that God can do the impossible. I want us to believe that there is nothing that God cannot do. A couple of months ago, my son Lucas was sitting at my desk in what used to be my office and has now become the playroom, which is usually the case. And he had a pin out, and he was writing on my, on my desk, and he made a scratch in my desk in the midst of writing. And he got scared about it, and so he went to me and told me, and I said, it's okay, Lucas, it's not that big of a deal, it's just a desk. And then Lucas said this. He said, Daddy, he said, can we pray that God would, and he said peel, but he means heal. He said, Daddy, can we pray that God would peel this desk? Can we pray that God would peel the scratch on this desk? And I got to tell you, when he said that, my initial gut reaction was to say no. Because God doesn't heal desks, right? And so my initial gut reaction was to say, no, Lucas, we don't, we don't really pray that God would heal desks. But before I could say that, I stopped myself. And I had this thought, and I, and I think the thought is from God. The thought I had was this. Chris, don't destroy his faith. Don't destroy his faith. Of course I can heal a death. And in fact, the faith that your son is showing is the faith I want you to have, is the faith that I want all my children to have. You know, as we get older, we, we tend to limit God, right? Of course God can't heal a desk. Of course God can't heal someone of, of type 1 diabetes. There's no way God can do that. You want to bet God created this universe out of nothing. God can do anything that he wants to do. So I, I don't care what the doctor has said, Okay? I want you to believe that God can do it. And, I, and if you feel led, I want you to come forward and I want you to receive prayer for it. So that's first. Second thing I want to say is this. If you don't know Jesus, the best thing we have to offer you today is not physical healing. The best thing we have to offer you today is spiritual healing. The best thing we have to offer you is forgiveness of sins through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you want to learn how to begin that relationship, we would also invite you to come forward because we would love to pray for you in that as well. Because at the end of time, that is what counts the most. That's what's most important. So would you do me a favor? Would you stand with me right now? And at this time, I'm going to call our prayer team to come forward. Just come out right out of your seats right now and come to the front of the stage and to the landings over there. And uh, Elaine's going to come out, but I'm going to pray for us as we enter into this time. So would you pray for us?
Father, we just come before you right now, God. And Father, we acknowledge that you are the God who can do the impossible. You are the God who can do anything, Father. And God, it is, it is out of that faith and belief that we enter into this time, Lord. God, I, I know that there are many in our church who are struggling with really big illnesses. And Father, I know that logic tells us, science tells us, sometimes everything within us at times tells us uh, that, 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 it's, that it's hopeless and there's nothing that can be done. But Father, we believe that you can do anything. And so, Father, I I pray that in this time, first of all, that you would increase our faith, God. You would increase our faith and our belief that there is nothing that is impossible for you. And God, I pray that you would put on the hearts of of people here who need prayer to come forward and receive prayer. And God, I, I, I ask that if there's anybody sitting here that feels any sort of inkling to come forward, Lord, that they would recognize that that's from you and that they would come forward. And God, I, I recognize that this is a time where, where all we are doing is just laying this before your feet, God. That's all we're doing. We're bringing whatever illness, whatever struggle we have, God. We're giving it to you. We're asking and believing that you can do something big. But God, we, we are letting you decide what, what you are going to do, Lord. And, and, and God, I just believe there is no shame in asking. In fact, I believe you delight when your children come before you. And when we ask you to do the miraculous, to do the impossible. And so, God, I pray that there would be a spirit of of faith and belief in this place. I pray that there would be a spirit of peace in this place, a spirit of worship in this place, God. And I do ask, Lord, that we would see some really big stories come out of this because you are the God who can do the impossible, Lord. And that all these stories would be an opportunity for us to praise you and to tell others about the God we worship. So, Father, we just give you this time. You do what you will. You be pleased. You be glorified in and through it. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen.